You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. End-stage renal disease. Is it a growing national epidemic? Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Krauss. Dr. Krauss is the Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine and the Clinical Chief in the Division of Nephrology at Indiana University, Indianapolis. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Krauss. Thanks for having me. I'd like to talk about which I believe is a huge growing problem, the problem of end-stage renal disease. Could you put it into perspective for us? How many patients are we talking about in this category? End-stage renal disease is, is unfortunately a very rapidly growing disease population, which is expected to double about every 10 years, given the increasing number of patients who progress and then the longer length of time we're able to keep people alive with end-stage renal disease. In 2004, which are most recent statistics, there were 472,000 Americans with end-stage renal disease and greater than a, a million worldwide. Of those 472,000, 28% of them had a, a transplant and about 336,000 of them were on dialysis therapy. That certainly is a very large number. Can we take care of all of them? At the present course, yes. As it continues to grow, it will be a continued difficulty and challenge to nephrologists and internists taking care of patients with this, these disease processes. Now, what are the most common underlying causes that lead to the development of end-stage renal disease? Certainly, the two most important and two most common are diabetes and hypertension, which unfortunately, as you know, are undergoing epidemics of their own. And as they continue to grow, the resulting end-stage renal disease from these disease populations will continue to grow as well. After that are a mix of renal diseases that can be classified under either vasculitis or glomerulonephritis, and then followed by things like polycystic kidney disease. But those last two, what percentage of the total do they account for? Much smaller. Polycystic kidney disease is probably about 10% of the total and glomerulonephritis is probably another 15%. So with the growing uh, obesity epidemic and diabetes epidemic, does that suggest that we're going to have an epidemic in end-stage renal disease as well? Absolutely. That's where the greatest concern is, and, and the fort, hopefully the part of the disease that we will have the the greatest impact in reducing the progression to end-stage renal disease. Now, let's talk about certain patient populations, especially the African-American population. Is there an increased risk of developing end-stage renal disease if you're African-American? The African-American population has, interestingly enough, a marked increase in excess risk that we can't easily modify. About half of the excess risk may have modifiable factors such as hypertension that's not been controlled. But the risk for an African-American is, is roughly threefold that of a Caucasian American in the United States. Does end-stage renal disease present at a younger age in the African-American population? Certainly, particularly the African-American male at a younger age has the highest risk, and that goes to about fourfold compared to Caucasian. As they get older above the age of 60, the risk goes down to about one and a half to 1.3. How much does hypertension contribute to that increased risk of end-stage renal disease in that population? It's been estimated to be about 30 to 40 percent of the cause. So that sounds like there's causes we don't understand then why there's this increased risk in the African-American population. There certainly appears to be at least some genetic variations that we don't understand well. Now what about the elderly? This is a difficult group to take care of. As patients get in the seventh, eighth plus decade of life, are we seeing more and more end-stage renal disease in this age group? We're seeing the largest growth in the elderly as defined in the seventh and eighth decade of life. And some of that is in days past, we probably didn't treat them for their end-stage renal disease, so they never defined, became defined as end-stage renal disease. 
as dialysis and even transplantation has improved for the elderly patient, that the population is clearly growing. Now, once a patient gets to this stage and gets on dialysis, what are the common causes of morbidity and death once you're on dialysis? As the patient progresses, even with just chronic kidney disease and then towards end-stage renal disease, the biggest cause of increased risk of death is cardiovascular. So as patients get end-stage renal disease, they develop more cardiac issues. Is there any way that we can try to screen for that or prevent that? I think as with even just the treatment of chronic kidney disease, the most important thing is to identify chronic kidney disease early in the course. The fact that a patient has chronic kidney disease and heart failure is one of the largest risk factors for that patient's death. Same thing is true for chronic kidney disease and coronary artery disease. There's a five to six-fold increase of risk of death just by the increase in serum creatinine. So it's, it's a course that we should be following much earlier than waiting until they progress to dialysis. So we would like to begin to modify things early in the course. So the, the best way to modify cardiovascular risk is to identify chronic kidney disease early and then treat the modifiable risk factors. So that really brings up the issue of how can we really prevent end-stage renal disease. Are there particular therapies that have been shown to slow the progression of renal disease or hopefully prevent the development of end-stage renal disease? Absolutely, and they're, they're finally beginning to be able to be accounted for as we watch the growth of end-stage renal disease. There's beginning to be a plateauing of the, the new patients to the incident patients to end-stage renal disease. Most notably, things that we can control are blood pressure, with much tighter goals than we were historically have been told. So a patient with more than a gram of protein in their urine and chronic kidney disease should have a gold blood pressure of 120 over 70. Other patients with chronic kidney disease, 130 over 70 may be acceptable, but we continue to find that the lower the blood pressure, the better the chance of decreasing the progression of end-stage renal disease. In addition to that, type of agents used to treat hypertension are extremely important. Both ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers alone have been shown to decrease the progression of to end-stage renal disease. There's a school of thought, yet not yet proven, that a combination of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers may even be more potent. You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and my guest is Dr. Michael Krauss, and we are discussing end-stage renal disease, the growing epidemic. You mentioned that uh, blood pressure control is crucial in our patients to try to prevent the progression to end-stage renal disease and some of the blood pressure goals. ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers are preferred uh, agents. Do they have benefit to the kidney that is above and beyond just their blood pressure lowering effects? Clearly, the, the effects have been shown to be above and beyond that of the blood pressure itself. There likely is decrease in the intrarenal growth factors, and there certainly appears to be slowing in the progression of fibrosis within the kidney. Are they especially useful in patients with proteinuria, or can they also give that additional benefit if proteinuria is not present? They're clearly very important in the patients and very useful in patients with proteinuria, but virtually all forms of chronic kidney disease, save polycystic kidney disease, has been shown to slow progression with the use of both ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. If you have a patient with a proteinuria, what type of doses do you try to push the drugs to? In other words, if you've got the blood pressure under control, but you're still not at maximum doses, do you still continue to increase the dose to try to further reduce the proteinuria? It's a slight area of controversy, but most nephrologists agree that use of ACE inhibitors in maximally tolerated doses is, is preferred. 
So when I see a patient with proteinuria, I'll start with an angiotensin receptor blocker or an ACE inhibitor and try to push that dose to the maximum or even twice the maximum dose is, is recommended. Watching, of course, the blood pressure to make sure there's not side effects of hypotension and watching the serum creatinine to make sure there's not unacceptable acute rises in serum creatinine and watching the potassium to make sure there's no hyperkalemia. I think one of the questions I'm always asked is how high do you allow the creatinine to go before you get worried in using these agents? Do you have a type of algorithm that you use when you get concerned about creatinine levels and ACE inhibitors or angiotensin blocker use? Generally, the algorithm is one of, I would say, about 10% change in serum creatinine. You have to remember when you use these agents, the goal is a long-term effect on decreasing the risk of progressing to end-stage renal disease. And the short-term small increase in GFR is probably acceptable. Most patients that experience a small increase in serum creatinine actually do quite well over a short period of time and that, that small increase disappears. The bigger concern is the patient that rises more than 10%. And generally what I'll do is check a serum creatinine one to two weeks after starting the ACE inhibitor or increasing the dose. And if it's elevated, I'll repeat it the following week. A per persistent or progressive rise, obviously, is a concern that the patient will not tolerate ACE inhibitors. Is there a serum creatinine level or a GFR level that you would not use these agents as a first-line agent? Also, this is an area of some controversy, but I think those of us that follow the chronic kidney disease literature carefully feel there is not a level at serum creatinine where we would not introduce ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers as long, again, you're watching the labs carefully and closely. Now, another major cause of end-stage renal disease is diabetes. Is there some evidence that tight control of diabetes can help prevent the progression of renal disease? The DCCT studies from the past have clearly shown that tight control of diabetes actually slows the progression of renal disease as well as improves the progression of background diabetic retinopathy. That effect is less than the effect of blood pressure control and ACE inhibitors, but is also very important. Now tell me how you would begin screening for kidney disease. Is a kidney profile just checking a creatinine good enough, or what type of measurements should we be getting on our diabetic and hypertensive patients? Well, as a primary care physician, I think the most important thing to do is recognize who's at risk for chronic kidney disease. Certainly any patient with hypertension or diabetes are, are at major risk, but other patients with family histories of kidney disease also are at increased risk. The best screening methods are simple laboratories and urine tests, a plain urinalysis, a basic metabolic profile, including the serum creatinine and estimating the GFR is a very useful tool. In addition, particularly in hypertensive patients as well as diabetics, a yearly microalbumin to creatinine ratio is quite reasonable. As microalbumin to creatinine rises, above normal levels, the risk of progressing to chronic kidney disease or increasing risk of cardiovascular disease warrants more aggressive therapy of both the hypertension and the diabetes. So all hypertensive patients and diabetic patients, you're recommending a urine protein or microalbuminuria to creatinine ratio as a spot check once a year? Yes, because that may change the way that you treat the patient, change the goals of blood pressure, and maybe even change the medications used. And when would you use a 24-hour urine to quantitate the protein? The problem with 24-hour urines are they're difficult to actually obtain correctly. What we have found is a spot urine for protein and creatinine 
and then looking at the protein to creatinine ratio is a reasonable substitute for a 24-hour urine. So I rarely order more than one 24-hour urine, and that's simply because in my lab, if I want to check for immunoglobulins in the urine, I need a 24-hour sample. But if you can get the urine protein to creatinine ratio, uh, you can assume the amount in the 24-hour urine based on the, the ratio such that a normal ratio of protein to creatinine is about 0.1 to 0.15. If the ratio rises to 1, you can assume that patient's spilling about a gram of protein in 24 hours. Likewise, if they go to 2 or 3, the increase in 24-hour urine protein goes to 2 or 3 grams as well. I want to thank Dr. Michael Kraus, the Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine and Clinical Chief for the Division of Nephrology at Indiana University, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the problem of end-stage renal disease. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.